We're going to take a reading from the book of Numbers, chapter 14. The book of Numbers, chapter 14. And we're going to read 20 verses, the first 20 verses of Numbers, chapter 14. And as is often the case in the book of Numbers, this is a narrative, so there's an event unfolding here that we hope that you'll pay attention to and that we'll try to emphasize this morning. Numbers chapter 14, beginning in verse 1 of our scripture reading. It says this, And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore, or why hath the Lord brought us unto this land, to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain, and let us return into Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephthu, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not yet against the Lord. Excuse me, only rebel not ye against the Lord. Neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. And Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it, for thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, for they have heard that thou, excuse me, that thou, Lord, art among this people, that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of a cloud, and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great, according as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering, of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, 
the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy. And as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. And I'm going to pause our reading there. There was more that the Lord said, but this contains our thought today. It's Numbers 14, 1 through 20. And please forgive any of the mistakes that I might have made in the reading today. Uh, last week, I shared with you that um, my heart has been focused upon and thoughtful about our revival that is beginning this Friday. And um, we have a number of people by their own profession that do not know the Lord among us and that desire to know the Lord. And I had heard a comment from a lost child that asked the question, why do people pray for lost people if they can't, if their prayers can't do anything? And Though I think I understand the general sentiment of her question or inquiry, that is, our prayer can't save them. I think she is, as a young kid, misinformed about the power of prayer. And this has definitely seized my mind again this week, and I would like to continue bringing some thoughts forward. How do we help lost people? Or how do we help a lost person? is the thought that we are going to try to speak on this morning. And this week, I would like to talk about intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer. The scripture that we read this morning contains something that I think, in a general sense, a sentiment or an experience that all of us have had. God, Moses had commanded upon God's beckoning for... Twelve spies to be sent out to the land of Canaan. Twelve spies went out and they came back. And ten of them gave a report of fear. Saying, there's giants in that land. And if we go and we try to conquer that land, we're going to be destroyed and decimated. And there is no hope for us. And they ignored the promises of God because God had delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt and had determined that he wanted them to go into the promised land, Canaan, and conquer all those nations. And he promised that he would be with them and enable them to do so. But because of their hard-heartedness and disobedience, because of the words of these men that came back, ten of them came back with discouraging words. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, came back, and all they could talk about was how big the fruit was. How great that God's provision in this promised land was, and it was merely a footnote in their thought, the obstacles that they were going to meet, because they were clinging to the promises of God, knowing that He was going to accompany them and enable them to face whatever enemy stood before them. And so as they're deliberating what to do, we pick up the narrative in Numbers chapter 14, and we begin to read that that night there was this great cry that was going out. The people were afraid. So they gathered together, and they determined to rebel against Moses and those leaders that God had placed there. Even so much that they were going to stone them 
get a new leader that would lead them back to slavery so that they could go back to a way of life they were accustomed to. Now, to really understand the fullness of this story, we have to understand some of the backstory as to what God had already done and demonstrated before these people. You remember that for 400 years they had been in bondage to the Egyptians and then through 10 miraculous signs, God delivered them. Things that nobody could deduce could happen by natural strength, but that only God could do something of such power and force and something that was supernatural. And so through these 10 plagues, as we often call them, God delivers these people. Not only does he deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians, but they are so eager, their taskmasters are so eager to kick them out that they say, take whatever you want, just get out of here. And so in a moment, they go from a group of people who had been in bondage for 400 years to those who looked as though they conquered their taskmasters, enriched by the wealth of those people as they exit that land and go out to the place that God had designed for them. There is nothing in human history, I'll have you know, that mirrors that. That is an anomaly. That doesn't happen. And yet, Pharaoh becomes hard-hearted. And he determines, I've made a mistake. I'm going to go get him. They get out to the Red Sea. And God puts this, this thing between them and the Egyptian army. This pillar of fire. Like just that in and of itself, isn't that amazing? This, I mean, imagine seeing it. You know, like we speak of it and it's this, fictional story in our minds. But I mean, really imagine being one there and all of a sudden there is this self-contained fire. I don't even know what it would look like, how to even describe it. But all you know is that army can't get to us. And then, you know the story. The sea just parts. I mean, that was the, a little lake around here. If that had been the baptism waters that we went down and baptized Marley in just a few days ago, we would all talk about it the rest of our lives. But imagine the enormity of a, a sea that is as far as your eye can, can see, and all of a sudden it parts. And then imagine your first step. You're saying, this isn't mud. This is dry ground. Not only did you just see it, but you experienced the safety of it. More than a million people, it's estimated, trod through there. So think how long that had to take. Half a day, half a night, whole night. So it's not that it happened but a moment, but you're witnessing it on one side. You walk through it, and you're watching all around you. You get to the other side... And you're watching everybody else come through. And then God caused that pillar of fire to disappear. And that army came charging in after him. 
and at the perfect time, when all of your people are saved and all of their people are in danger, the sea closes. I mean, can words even express that? I wish that I could fully communicate the wonder of that. And yet, to experience it, that amazement is compounded from our minds a hundredfold. Then, God does ten wonders and signs in the wilderness. Times where they would complain about not having food. So God would let them wake up in the morning and there it lay on the ground for a million people. Then they got dissatisfied with the food he was providing. They didn't like the menu. So God spiced it up a little bit. They ran out of water. So God provided. So these people have seen 10 miracles in Egypt. They have ransacked those who were, they were enslaved to for 400 years. They've been guided by a visual sign by day and night. They've been protected by an army. They've gone through the Red Sea. Their army has been destroyed. They get out into the wilderness and there's 10 more things that God does of a miraculous nature. And now they're about to go into something God has promised and they don't trust him. Of all the things, the lack of faith in the scripture, this generation is brought forward more than any other in the whole Bible for how can't you believe in God with this sort of evidence? They become the symbol all through the word of God of lack of faith. And it's because God's provision was so radical and profound, how could even merely a rational person, let alone a person who knows God intimately, not trust and believe in God's provision for what he would do from this point on? Yet, they didn't. So let me pause for a moment because what I said a few moments ago is that we've all witnessed something like this. Have you ever known somebody that was a hopeless cause from your estimation? Someone who you looked at a situation and you said, I I don't understand. Look at what God has blessed you with. You know, when I went to Africa when I was 19, that was one of the things. The hardest part was not being there. The hardest part was coming back. Because then... I understood to some greater degree the proportion to which God has blessed us. And all of these things that I take so for granted, I was forced to take into consideration there. Simple things like transportation and time and food and water and cleanliness and all of these things that I just never think about daily routine it was coming back that was hard because I'm looking around and the first time I was in the New York airport coming home and I was standing in line to get some American food because I hadn't eaten very much when I was over there and these people were getting frustrated with the worker who was trying to work hard to get their their pizza and they were running 30 seconds or a minute behind what was normal 
And these people were getting so irate. And I just thought, come on. I, was, I have a hard time reconciling that world coming back. But have you ever seen a hopeless situation? Something where you look at somebody and you say, God has blessed you more than what you imagine and you're taking it for granted. Your parents have provided for you more than what you understand. You have a good set of parents who love you and yet you don't appreciate them. And the list goes on and you stand and it's frustrating or it's disheartening and discouraging. So here are what are the inclinations of mankind. Well, one inclination that some of you have, some of us have rather, because I fall in this category is I try to fix it. I try to fix people's problems. See, my tendency is to think this, and I shared a little bit of this on Wednesday night. If people know the truth, then they'll just do it. Again, naivety in me. But just this idea is, is the problem is a lack of knowledge. And if all people have is the knowledge, then certainly they can deduce of themselves, okay, I'll do this. And so perhaps as a, a teacher, my, what I've striven to do for so much of my life is just get people the information, and yet I have found myself over and over disappointed because even when they've had the information of what they need to do, or as a pastor trying to counsel married couples or children who are in rebellion, and you say, well, listen, this is what the Word of God says, and look at what you're experiencing and the harm you're causing other people and causing yourself, but then look at this template that God has laid down. If you'll merely follow it, look at the end result that God promises or what other people are experiencing, and you put out that information, and yet somebody who was teaching me about counseling said the hardest thing about counseling people is that 90% of people don't do what's right to do. And so you have to live with that disappointment and pain of saying, here's the truth. And they refuse it. And then they reap what they sow. And you see them being in pain and the suffering it causes other people. And there's nothing you can do about it. My tendency, the tendency of some of us is to just keep pushing. So you present the information and they don't act on it. And so, let me put this delicately, mothers. This is a tendency of mothers sometimes. With kids who are getting out of the house and beginning to let their wings, or letting themselves learn how to grow, and as they say, fly on their own. And you have the helicopter mom, right? The one who's always wanting to push and, and push and making sure, and oftentimes what that can cause is rebellion. But what they're doing is you're saying, I know what's right, and you perhaps do. And your love is compelling you to say, you're going down the wrong path, and it's going to hurt you, and I don't want it to hurt you, and I want to prevent you all this pain. And so we push, and we push, and we push, and we push. And it's a way of trying to intervene. Those are the two that come to my mind. There are many others. Ways that we substitute for what Moses does here. Because I'll tell you this morning that what God wants us to do is go to the one person who can actually change things. And that's the Lord himself. Now, let me pause for a moment and say this. I hate, and that's a strong word, I hate the way that people talk about prayer today. Here's a common thing. You go to a funeral 
Or maybe you're going through a hard time and somebody says, well, I'm thinking of you. Or then they'll say sometimes, I'm thinking and praying for you. There's nothing wrong with that statement, right? You think and pray for people. What I don't like is it's become a catchphrase. So sometimes I'll, I've jokingly said to my wife or said to somebody close to me, where well, are you going to pray for them then? Right? Like, are you really going to do it? Or is it just a moment of consoling them? Because that can give momentary, make you feel good. But that's temporary. What God can do is permanent. And it would be better for you never to tell them you're going to pray for them, but pray for them diligently that God might do his work and console it. Now, it's not mutually exclusive, and I don't want to paint it that way. But my point is this. Prayer is not a flipping out activity. And I'm not going to preach on prayer this morning. I'm going to preach on intercessory prayer. But I want to begin it by saying prayer is not a flippant thing. It ought to be purposeful and serious. It ought to be done. And as we're going before God, we've got to think about who we're going to. The God of the universe, the creator of everything we know and see, the establisher of absolute truth, the one who is good all the time, that is the one to whom we're going to. One who has the omnipotent power to do whatever he chooses with not being confined by anything, We're going before God Almighty. All the ones who demonstrated these signs to the Israelites and who still has that power to do beyond what he demonstrated there and be all the things that he demonstrated in the Bible of his power are merely small snippets of what the infinite power that God has. And so when we go to him, we must consider to whom we're going, not only of his power, but of his deep compassion. God loves people deeply and intimately and infinitely. And so we're going to somebody who is of this nature, who has the power to change things that we can't understand. You see here in this, God speaks to Moses and in verse 11 says, how long will the people be like this? How long before they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? I will smite them with pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. So God says, I'm ready to wipe them out and start fresh. Now people have a hard time and I don't understand to the fullest extent. I don't know that anybody does how the will of God functions. I categorize it, this is, this is me, this isn't anybody else, into three ways the will of God functions. One is God's predestined will. I'll be careful of that word, right? I don't believe that man, men, some men are predestinated to go to heaven and some are predestinated to go to hell. I don't believe that. But I do believe that there are some things that God knows that he determines are going to happen and there's nothing we can do about it. Jesus Christ was going to be given as a ransom for our from the foundation of the world and nothing that anybody did was ever going to change that. When he prophesied it, that Messiah was going to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem from the line of David and there was nothing anybody could do about it. God predestined those things to happen 
according to his own will and pleasure. And so there are some things that God has determined what are going to happen, perhaps when they're going to happen. But I'll admit this, most of us have no idea what those things are. And I would equally say, I believe, this is me, from reading the scriptures, those are limited. There's not a lot of those things. Then there's God's ideal will. His ideal will is these are things he wants to take place. And so he tells us, this is what I want to happen. God desires that all men come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. So it is of God's desire and heart that every wicked person in the world comes to know him. And yet, he has not predestined that to happen. Rather, he has placed that into the third thing in my mind that I think of, and that is his permissive will. God expresses, this is what I want to happen, but I am going to allow my creatures, based upon their own actions or lack of actions, to either cause or prevent things from happening. My opinion is, the vast majority of things that happen in the world are according to God's permissive will. God did not determine what you had for breakfast this morning. God is not, got, not going to determine where you go for lunch this morning necessarily. He can, but not necessarily. He speaks truth to us. He opens opportunity for us. And he allows of us to make decisions, hopefully guided by the principles and desires of his ideal will. Why is that important? Because it really goes at the heart of effective prayer. Very often, here's what people think. God has determined something's going to happen, so why does it matter if I pray or not? But the question is not that, because what I would argue is this. Many things God has not determined, and what he has said is that he desires for the means by which things happen to be our actions. And one of those actions that God calls us to is prayer. God says, Jesus said, back in the, I believe the book of John, or excuse me, the book of Matthew, that some things come only by what? Prayer and fasting, which means that God will intervene, God can intervene, but the means by which he applies his intervention is that you and I go to our knees in prayer and begin to beseech and beckon and request of God that he intervene on behalf of the situation. God wants us, in short, to be a part of what he does. One of the things that is a, a wonderful thing to experience with your children and what often brings great joy and involvement and engagement and deeply roots your relationship with your children is whenever you ask your children to participate in something that you can completely do yourself, but you want their participation, not because it's essential to accomplish the deed, but because it does something for both of you by engaging in this activity. Right? If you mothers are cooking something and you ask your son or your daughter to come and, and to participate in that, there is a sense to which it begins to affect and change them and it requires of them to develop qualities and characteristics that might come together with you and engage and deepen your relationship. And so oftentimes one of the most joyous things you can do as a parent or a grandparent is to say, Come help me with this. You know what it oftentimes does? It takes longer to do it. Sometimes it becomes more frustrating because more problems arise when these little hands and little brains go on, uh, have a mind of themselves, and they begin to intervene in things they know nothing about. Yet, 
Well, I would argue is that even though I can accomplish it better and quicker, I prefer to do it with my children because of what it does for us. You know, the means by which God accomplishes many things for other people is intercessory prayer. Moses here intervenes on behalf of these people and he he pleads with God. Notice the root of his prayer. What was it? It was not about the people. And it wasn't about him. What was it about? It was about God. He said, God, what's going to happen if you destroy all these people? What are the Egyptians going to say? And what are the inhabitants to which we're going going to say? And he tells them what they're going to say. You know what they're going to say? They're going to say their God was powerful enough to deliver them out of Egypt and bring them out here But their God didn't have the power to lead them into the promised land and to conquer all these nations and do what they intended to do. So he just wiped them all out because their God didn't have the power to do it. And so Moses goes before God and he pleads and he says, God, for your name's sake, for your power's sake, will you not intervene in this situation so that you are glorified and so that other people see the power and might that you alone have? See, Moses loved God. He loved the people. That's why he interceded for him. But he loved God. And what he did not want was God's name. You know, oftentimes when I pray for these kids, I've prayed very often, Lord, if you'll begin to save some of them, I believe that it will have such an impact on the rest of them that you'll save all of them. Because oftentimes when people begin to see stubborn hearts, hardened hearts, or people who have diligently sought for a long time, it creeps into the mind and the heart of especially lost people that God does not have the power like he used to, or that God is unwilling uh, to do those things. And there are demonic forces that come and continue to play upon their mind and to speak into their heart these things that God is unable or unwilling to do. But then often what you'll find is that when one or two kids get saved tonight, you'll often see five or six or 10 or 12 get saved. And oftentimes I believe it is because they see God's power and might demonstrated before their eyes and it encourages and strengthens their faith that if God can save them, if God can move this backslidden uh, church member who has been out of church for years and breaks their heart and brings them back in humble repentance, if God is powerful enough to do all those things, then God is powerful enough to help me. Said just a few weeks ago, I think sometimes what we struggle with is that we don't see the profound transformative power of God in and among us. Thus, we lack the faith to believe that God has transformative power altogether. Moses intercedes for these people, and notice what God says in verse 20 Because of your prayer, I will spare these people. That's not the only time God did that to Moses, and it's not the only time God did that throughout the Bible, where people intervened, and God on behalf of those people. You know, another case, I believe it's the the book of Deuteronomy. I believe I'm telling you correctly there in the book of Deuteronomy, another occasion where Moses has to do this. You know what he says? He says, God, don't do it for their sake. But you remember when you made those promises to Abraham and Isaac, and to Jacob. Bless their offspring because of those faithful men. You ever pray that prayer for people? I do. Lord, their grandparent was so faithful to you. Would you look back on the faithfulness they showed and convict their grandchildren now? 
intercessory prayer, God, here's the sum of what I'm trying to say. God intervenes when we intercede on behalf of lost people. Here's the last thing I want to say. What do we pray? What do we pray for lost people? I spent years struggling with this, really. So let's say we have an altar full of lost people who are seeking after God for salvation. And night after night, they get up unsatisfied that God has done a work in their heart. What do we pray? Now, I can't tell you, again, precisely what to pray because what's more important is the condition of your heart as you pray it. But I do think that there are things that we can be mindful of as we pray. One of those things is the realization that I think God's people vastly underestimate and the world underestimates that we've talked about even last week, and that is demonic forces. I think one day, when more is revealed to us in heaven, we will be stunned at the degree to which demonic forces were involved in daily activity. He has a whole swath of angels, demons now, that roam to and fro upon the earth seeking to cause discord in the spiritual realm. And those demons could care less about how rich or poor a person becomes, but they do care about the state of their soul. And so do you not think when they see a young man or a young woman or an old man or an old woman seeking God for salvation diligently and sincerely and being under the sound of the gospel, do you not think that those demonic forces don't try to prevent or cause stumbling blocks in the way of those lost people? Absolutely they do. Praise be to God, the scriptures reassure us, reassure us, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, lest we be so concerned about that, we, we wilt in fear. We don't need to wilt in fear. What we need to recognize is that we need to run to the one who has a power far beyond what those demonic forces could even envy, let alone play out. The Bible says this, so what can we pray for those people from demonic forces? Well, the Bible teaches us in the book of Job, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, that Satan, when he, pray, when he desired to go and to cause stumbling blocks and harm to Job, what accusation did he make against God? He said, God, you've built a hedge around him. I love that. God saw one of his children, loved him, and said, I'm going to protect him from certain harms that other demonic forces often do to other people. You ever heard the song, Wall of Prayer? I think, I don't know the origin of that song, but it certainly relates to Job chapter 1 very well. One of the things that you and I can pray is things we don't know anything about, and that is, Lord, if there are demonic forces that are discouraging and whispering thoughts in their mind, that are bringing up, allowing them to see things, hear things that might discourage them or dissuade them from seeking after you. Lord, protect them from the bad and emphasize and accentuate the good and the righteous and the truth and the holy in their minds. Because even as parents, we can do all that we can to make sure they're exposed to good and that they're protected from evil. But in the end, Satan is more powerful than you and I on our own. And he's, he can 
presently work when we're not around or when we're not aware or when our temper or our personality is not situated to protect our children, but our prayers going to God who is omniscient, who needs not a night off or a moment's notice, whose personality is unaltering and unchanged, God can intervene based upon the request that we have prayed over and over for our children or for our loved ones. Lord, protect them when I'm not around. In moments of temptation, speak truth into the heart through your Holy Spirit and lessen the impact that those demonic forces and the weight that it carries in their hearts, protect them from that. I believe that's a prayer that we often need to pray. I think there's another prayer and that is that that we can pray for them and that is this. Lord, allow them to be sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit. The Bible presents it as a hardening of the heart. What this generation is renowned for and referred to over and over in Scripture is a stiff-necked and a hard-hearted generation. In other words, this. God speaks truth. The tender heart takes it, allows it to do its work with the work of the Spirit, and then responds in obedience to it. That's what a tender heart does. And what all we as Christians desire is to have as sensitive and tender a heart as we can possibly have to the things of God. Lord, make it to where when you say do something, I don't question, I don't uh, think and try to come up with my own scheme. I immediately say, yes, Lord, I'm gonna do it. You know, lost people that don't know the Lord like we do, they can develop hardened hearts. I can confess whenever I was a lost young man that there would be times where the preaching of the gospel would go and God's spirit would begin to take it and prick my heart with it, burden my heart. And then his spirit would begin to draw me to Christ, that I needed to surrender my life to Jesus Christ and find him as Lord and Savior of my life. And I would be drawn. But then I would think, yeah, but there's like 100 people here this morning, you know? And there's a cute girl here today. And I've gone up a hundred times. And I've never gotten saved anyway. And this isn't the appropriate time in the service because usually we have singing and then we do this and then we do this. And we just got here. All these things would mold through my mind. And you know what it began to do? Hearted me. I learned how not to respond to the word of God. So when God would speak to me, I could find a reason not to, right? These people found a reason not to. Don't think it was just a resolute, nope, not doing it. No, there was reasons they didn't do it. And the reason was there's giants in that land. They're stronger than us. They have fortified cities. They're going to kill us. That's why I'm not going to do it. The development of a hardened heart is not someone who is simply defiant. It's somebody who can find excuses, distractions, and reasons not to obey the word of God. And those things develop and you get a long list of those things. And those things cause you or are, are categorized as a hardened heart. Someone who is determined for whatever reason that they can come up with not to respond to the word of God. What can we do in intercessory prayer? We can beg and beseech God 
that he would use things like he did the Apostle Paul, like we spoke last week, that they're vulnerable to, that they'll respond to words, people. That's why it's important that we as God's people respond. I can tell in my own testimony this. There are many people whenever I was a lost young man, when I would sit in the pews that would come to me and, and ask me if I needed to come forward and pray. There was young, one man of the church, just one, who took an interest in my sports outside of church. The day I got saved, you know who came to me? That man. You know the reason I went to the altar to pray? Because I respected that man. I don't want to disappoint that, that man. And so at first I went out of, I don't want to disappoint you, I'm going to go pray. And then I got to the altar and God began to deal with my heart and, and I was under conviction and I was feeling the sorrow that I needed to feel that begat salvation. But it began because this man developed a relationship with me and upon that relationship, he responded to God speaking to him. Why is it important for us to follow the Lord? Because God knows what is sensitive to the hardened hearts of the lost people at our church. You and your relationship with them, your words, whatever God gives you in those moments may be the very thing that God wants to use to prick their hearts. You must pray. Lord, I don't, I'm not sitting saying, sit here and twiddle your thumbs and say, anything now, God? I'm saying, be willing when God sends you. When God gives you a burden, I'm not even saying necessarily in that capacity. I'm saying in any capacity. In any situation, be sensitive and willing. What can we pray for? We can pray that God would restrain demonic forces. We can pray that God would burden them and give them a sensitive heart responsive to the gospel. We can pray that God would lead his people spiritually. We can pray the last one here that God would restrain or prevent the law of the harvest. You know what the law of the harvest is? God tells us in the book of Galatians, you reap what you sow. When you reap what righteousness, that's a great scripture, isn't it? It's a very great scripture. That's why we need to strive for righteousness. But what if you cultivate in a home, in a life, in a heart, sin? Unrighteousness. What do you reap? Rebellion? Hardened hearts. So you know what I often pray is that it's a cause and effect. Me and you, by all of our intervention, cannot stop. If we plant a seed for corn, we can't cause it to come up anything but corn. But God can. God can change things to where it is not simply you reap what you sow. He can undo in people's hearts. Perhaps parents have spoken awful about God their whole life and they raise children in this awful environment that they're taught to hate God. And yet God's people intervene and they begin to pray to the God of the harvest and they begin to beseech God and beg God and say, God, this little innocent child who is if they were brought up in the church, may have been more sensitive to the gospel, but they have been trained and taught all the wrong things about you. Thus, they look at you in a certain way. God, you alone can soften their heart and help them. We pray, God, please change the law of the harvest. Don't make it to where people always reap what they sow this morning. I pray God would implant in you a desire. How can we help lost people? We can intercede for them in prayer. 
What I would say in closing is this. Very often people, I found myself praying, Lord, save them, save them, save them. I think that's an appropriate prayer to some degree in the sense that it shows the love that you have for them. But God can't answer that prayer specifically, can he? He can answer all these other ones, though, can he? God can restrain demonic forces. God can strengthen the power of his spirit being among us. God can lead God's people to respond in certain ways. God can restrain the law of the heart. God can actively respond in all of those ways. And let us pray diligently together that God would do that very thing for us as we upcoming this week in revival. We can help lost people. Last week we told you that we can shine where they can see a discernible difference. Today I tell you we can intercede for them in prayer in such a deep fashion as Moses and Paul both did that they said, Lord, if I could, I'd give my own soul in exchange for these. They were interceding for God, for these people in prayer. My request to you today is that you and I engage this week in intercessory prayer. For our lost loved ones, let us engage deeply in prayer on their behalf. That God in their situation would do what only God knows to do and has the power to do in their life and situation. A lot less doing on our part and a lot more asking God to do on his part. Because God does things that there's nothing man can restrain anyway. That's our message this morning and I pray that God would use it as weak as it is in his way that only he can.